Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. It's taken me considerable length of time to realize that I am a procrastinator. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Our icebreaker this week came from Irish singer-songwriter Julie Feeney. A few days back, she folk-rocked the CMJ Music Convention in New York City. That sounds so not tough. It is folk-rocking. Yeah? (laughs) You should see what folks can do with a... Tomahawk. Lanyard. <laughs> or a lanyard. We've also got Antonio Banderas talking about learning to talk. He's in Pedro Almodovar's excellent new movie, The Skin I Live In. Plus, cocktail recipes and a Grammy winner's dinner party soundtrack, all for the price of free. But first, as with any dinner party, we start with small talk. For something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi. She is the culture editor at the Bay Citizen Up in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. Oh, Rico, we're going to do this like Flavor Flav? Yeah. I like that. Up in San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> and down in Texas. Yeah, we have Jake Silverstein, the editor of Texas Monthly Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Rehan, let's start with you. What story are you going to be talking about at your dinner party this weekend? Well, I think it's been pretty well publicized that Occupy Wall Street has been amassing some money. Uh, they've got 300000 or so in their coffers. But for the regional Occupies, there's another way to contribute, and that is Amazon wish lists. Um, what? Really? Occupy Oakland started their Amazon wish list, currently has 43 items on it. The Godfather DVD. <laughs> you know, it's funny because Occupy Los Angeles has also has an Amazon wish list, but the wish lists are very different. Um, Occupy Oakland, for instance, has a hatchet on its wish list. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Occupy Los Angeles, not so much. No hatches. No. You know, first of all, hasn't the Bay Area been occupied for about three decades? <laughs> so you would think they would have most of the things, they, most of the stuff they need. Yeah. Um, and also, I've been to Oakland. What? There aren't any trees left in downtown Oakland. What's the hatchet? Yeah, yeah what is it for? There's more than one weapon, actually, on the Occupy Oakland's wish list. In addition to, you know, extension cables. More practical things. Yeah, bowls. So I'm guessing things not on the list include Atlas Shrugged, not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> the Lexus and the Olive Tree, not on, not not on the list. Find that. And so is Occupy Oakland also, like, registered at Crate and Barrel? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it so. begs a lot of questions. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Jake, what's your small talk for this week? Uh, something much more terrifying, which is that Steven Seagal was recently sworn in as a sheriff in Hudspeth County, Texas. <laughs> the border sheriff. Um, now, I mean, to be fair, this is part of his A&E reality show called Steven Seagal colon lawman. Because so, I'm assuming he's not he's not going undercover, right? <laughs> he's not going undercover, although it was revealed when he started the show that he had actually been working for two decades training local sheriff's deputies in Aikido. Really? Yeah. And he's, they claim that what he's doing in Texas is actually just for the good of the United States of America. Uh-huh. But interestingly, he's, there's been this scandal that's dogged him this summer, which is that as part of the show, a raid in Maricopa County was taped during which he is alleged to have killed a puppy. Oh, no. <gasps> a slight step down from, from terrorists. Bad lieutenant. <laughs> He'll start patrolling the border in January. I just think that this sta- this is a flagrant violation of the Eighth Amendment. It may not be cruel, but it is certainly mm-hmm. unusual punishment <laughs> to have Steven Seagal <laughs> stop you. What would you do if you were, like, across the border and you look up and there's Steven Seagal? Right. First you had to climb over Herman Cain's electrified border fence. <laughs> oh, man. That's true. And true. then you find Steven Seagal. <laughs> Jake, Rehan, thanks so much for joining us for the small talk. Great to be here. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. 
This is where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson with booze. Yes. We begin, though, by telling you the history part. This week, back in 1814, a London neighborhood endured one of the strangest floods ever. Your party guests probably won't have heard of it. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. The British love their beer, but in 1814, they realized love has its limits. Back then, one of the biggest brewers in town was a company called Mew, and their prize facility housed some of the biggest beer vats of the era. One of them stood 22 feet tall. That monster was filled with porter ale. After a while, the pressure on the barrel got to be too much. One of the iron hoops holding it together developed a crack, and on October 17th, it snapped. The barrel burst. The force of it busted open the surrounding vats, and soon a tidal wave of over 323,000 gallons of beer smashed through the brew house wall and into the poor slum outside. Some folks ran out with pots to scoop up free booze, but for others, it wasn't much of a party. The beer tsunami flattened two houses and killed nine people. Some of them drowned in beer-flooded basements. Even so, in court, Mew was held blameless. In fact, Parliament later reimbursed them for the tax they had paid on all that lost beer. So that was the alcohol-centric history. Now for some alcohol to serve with it. On the line is Katie Rose. She's a bartender at Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee, America's beer capital. Katie, you heard the story, and what cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, the drink is called The Last Call to Porter. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And so generally with any harrowing experience, I usually reach for a glass of bourbon. So this is a drink to calm the nerves if you are confronted with a tsunami of beer. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I started with Knob Creek bourbon whiskey, okay. which actually happens to be aged nine years, which nine people were killed in the event. Oh, well, weird. <laughs> exactly. And then also, um, officially, this was considered an act of God. So the drink includes both green chartreuse, and Benedictine. That's right. The courts decided that this was an act of God. So you use a a liquor made by Benedictine monks. Correct. And chartreuse is also made by monks. And frankly, I find chartreuse particularly heavenly as well. (laughs) So, Is there beer in this thing? There is, actually. So you take those three ingredients, shake them up, strain into a coupe glass, and top it with a porter beer. So it has kind of a chocolatey finish, a bittersweet end, Uh, (laughs) to say the least. Nice. And then to really go with the theme before you even get to take a sip, you should just smash the glass. Exactly. Provide yourself some sort of explosion, and then imbibe. (laughs) Toss in a firecracker. Enjoy. (laughs) Man, Rico, talk about a cautionary tale. Yes. <laughs> in college, you dream of getting caught in a beer flood. The reality is is not dreamlike. But you know, if it had been a Guinness flood, people might have escaped because the beer, you know, would yeah. have been moving so slow, they could have outrun it. It's true. All <laughs> beer should be Guinness. For safety. We can sell that. Uh, speaking of floods, ladies and gentlemen, you can unleash a torrent of cocktail recipes just by heading to our website. You'll find them all there, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. 
Hi, I'm Steve James, director of Hoop Dreams and many other films, including The Interrupters, which is the new film. I'm going to tell you about films, if you don't usually go to documentaries, that could hook you into going to see documentaries because they're that good. And these are not in order of preference. I think it's important to note. Number one, a movie called American Movie, the funniest documentary I've ever seen. And it's also got a very tender heart. It's about a guy in Milwaukee, been a struggling filmmaker for many years, and he's trying to make, get his epic film done called Northwestern. And his sidekick is a really sweet, but usually completely drugged out guy. So that's what we're doing a film on. We gotta get this sucker done, though, seriously. Last night, man, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, man, calling, trying to get to the Hotel Hilton at Tangiers in Casablanca, man. That's, I mean, that's, that's pathetic, man. Is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint schnapps and try to call Morocco at 2 in the morning? That's senseless, but that's what happens, man. So anyway, we're out here today to try to redeem it, get these establishing shots. You know, do what you can. You know, we're in America today, and we're ready to roll. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what happened to him. But my, my guess is is that he is uh, probably still working on Northwestern. And it's probably been about 15 years since that film was made. Number two, very different. It's called The Staircase, an incredible, like, six, seven-hour miniseries that follows a trial, a North Carolina murder trial, very much from the inside of the guy that's on trial. And it's riveting. You finish one episode, you want to watch the next one. And it's just this incredible uh, verite look at the way a trial really unfolds and the impact it has on the guy who's on trial for murder. She was just walking here. Uh, that's it. That was the last I saw Kathleen alive. No, she was alive when I found her, but barely. Um, 911, Last but not least is a film that is very obscure for most everyone in your audience called Inquiring Nuns. This is back in the mid-60s, where the filmmakers went around with two nuns asking strangers on the street, are you happy? It was just such a great concept. The whole idea of a nun, that you could open up to a nun, maybe unless you went to Catholic school, you know. But it, it was scored by Philip Glass when he was still, I think, a cabbie in Chicago. It's a beautiful little gem of a film. Good afternoon, could I ask you a question? Are you happy? Well, I think if I've been some some in other country, like uh, probably like Soviet Union, I've been not, not happy. But uh, I am happy in in the United States. What things in the United States make you happy? Oh, then that's democracy. I I, I could do what I like here. Yeah. Wouldn't work now. It would be too funny, and people would think, okay, where's you know, am I being punked, or is this a reality show? I think now we're too media conscious, savvy, cynical, whatever you want to say it. So it's a time capsule in a way, but you know, what people have to say about happiness or unhappiness is timeless, I think. That was the guest list from director Steve James. His new documentary, The Interrupters, is about an effort to stop gang violence in Chicago. I really want to check that out. You should. It's a 
If it doesn't get an Oscar nomination, it will be the most surprising thing since Hoop Dreams also didn't get an Oscar nomination. You heard it here first. You can catch it in theaters around the country. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. But coming up, author Jeannie Darst tells us about her mother's very public wardrobe malfunction. And for some reason, we asked Jackie Collins for party etiquette tips when she goes to parties like this. I remember being at a, a party that the mamas and the papas gave and there was like Japanese porn on the walls. <laughs> you won't hear that anywhere else. Stay tuned for more of The Dinner Party. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you stuff to flap about at your next dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Flap? You know what I mean. Is that is that a <laughs> jazz era way of saying talk? I, Probably. I wasn't there then. All right. Coming up, <laughs> we're going to hear from filmmaker Gary Hustwit, the director of Helvetica. His new film is called Urbanized, and he's got a few things to teach us about urban design. Like, I wish this was uh, full of nymphomaniacs with PhDs. Honest. He's talking about urban design there. We promise. But first, author Jackie Collins. Yes. Yes, that Jackie <laughs> Collins is in the studio to give us etiquette tips. Yes, etiquette tips. Jackie has sold over 400 million books worldwide. Each of her 27 novels has appeared in the New York Times bestseller list. It's now 28 novels because Goddess of Vengeance just came out, and yesterday it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Not again. Yeah, not again. I know. You should really give workshops to, like, Jonathan Franzen, to people to tell them how to do this. (laughs) You know, I would love to know how they do it, though, because I, I go out and I really promote books. Yeah. And I'm on TV, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and then I look at the bestseller list, and above me are people who I've never heard of. Never seen them on TV, Aww. never seen them on the radio, heard yeah. them on the radio. So you yeah. can have 28 books on the bestseller list and still be jealous of the people that are just slightly above you. I'm not jealous you know what of I mean. them. All right. <laughs> Jealousy is not in my vocabulary. I, or hate. Probably Negativity I wasn't there. Sucks. Then. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a good dinner party philosophy. And this is why we have you here. This is our etiquette segment. We asked our listeners for questions to ask you, and you're going to help us. Yeah. All right. right. First audience question, and we picked this for the first because this is actually similar to something I've done before. Sounds good. Say you mistook a woman's boyfriend for her father. How do you exit foot from mouth? And that's from Jen in Turlock, California. Oh, that's such an interesting question because there's so many discrepancies in couples, you know? And usually it's the old guy who's hitting Viagra every night. (laughs) with some, you know, bubbly 25-year-old blonde. And it is, you know, if people don't know, they are inclined to think that it's either her father, although I've seen in a resort once where this blonde came down to the swimming pool in a bikini with this old guy, and somebody said, isn't it nice? She's out with her grandfather. Oh, no. Oh, my God. And the woman doesn't seem to mind. She kind of laughs it off. But it's the person who says it that feels incredibly embarrassed. Yeah. And I think you just have to say... Well, you look right together, and I thought that you belonged together, so I naturally uh-huh. assumed it was your father, but I realized looking at you closely so, that you're in love. Oh, that's <laughs> right. It's like you've been together your whole lives. Exactly. That's a good one. I like that. I have to ask, is your advice different, if, or do you think the situation is different if it's the reverse, where you're, it's not the man that you're oh, mistaking for older? I think that's even worse, of because course. women don't like to be insulted, and no. if you said to a woman, is this your son, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, then really, you cannot talk to that person again. <laughs> yeah, in that situation... <laughs> It's not exit foot from mouth. It's exit party forever. Exit friendship. (laughs) The etiquette is to find out what's going on before time. And I think one of the most polite things you can do if you're having a dinner party, for instance, is to give your guests a rundown of who the other guests are. Yeah. So you say to them, you know, there's this old, old, old guy and this young, young, young girl, (laughs) and they are married. Yes. So So then you don't put your foot in it. Yes. So maybe if you make that mistake, you can just blame it on the host. Maybe that's a good way of getting out of it. Yeah. And I know what I hate. I hate when somebody sits next to me and they go... 
uh, I know you're a famous writer, but I've never read one of your books. Do I care if they read one of my books or not? <laughs> Absolutely not. But I think it's rude to say that. Right. Because yeah. it's like, what do they want, a badge of merit? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so we have another question. This is from Christine, and we received it via Facebook, so we don't know where she's from. But uh, the question is two parts. Well, what is the most offensive thing one can do at a party? Mm. And what is the most offensive thing you've seen done at a party? Well, I think the most offensive thing is when somebody has too much to drink and they throw up all over somebody. Mm, yeah, And right. I have seen that done at parties, and it's <laughs> oh. not good. But another offensive thing is if you're in a cold climate and everybody's got coats, and they usually throw them on somebody's bed, so there's a huge pile of coats. Yeah. And when you kind of, like, dig through to find your coat, then there's two people making out underneath <laughs> them. That's offensive. This happened to you? It's offensive. This happened to me, yes. And it was a famous person. Oh, oh really? And, and like, who who shall be nameless. Oh, come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I agree. If I'm making out under coats, don't take the coats off of me. No, I know. Let me stay Keep there. them covered. Yeah. Yes. It's offensive. But if it's my coat, I don't want you on top of it. I'm learning a lot here today. So wait, wait, this <laughs> couldn't have happened in Beverly people. Hills though. People don't wear coats here. It actually happened in London. Oh, and it was a very famous movie star who's now very happily married. It was the swinging London era? Yeah, it was the late 60s. <laughs> see, I believe that. Yeah, you see, you know these things, That Rico. like happens all the time. By the way, I love your name, Rico. I have to have a, a, a hero called Rico yes. immediately. It's like the old Barry Manilow song. His name was Rico. That's, That's right. Copacabana, you are the only person that thinks of the Barry Manilow song when they hear my name and not... The Gerardo song, Rico Suave. Oh, right. The other thing yeah. I get all the time. Yeah. I'm like, whatever happened to the Manolo yeah, song? Exactly. And anyway. Copacabana actually sounds like Galliano, which is your last name. That's so, so there's actually <laughs> Galliano, a Galliano, this is getting better all the time. He's yeah. straight out of one of my books. Well, you know what? We're going we're gonna to sell the rights <laughs> to Rico his- Rico Galliano. I like it. Tall, dark, and handsome. We'll negotiate the rights to Rico's name in a moment. <laughs> okay, thank you. But uh, first, we have, a, we have another question. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, we're asking questions. Oh, yeah. Um, Mark in Chicago, Illinois writes, I hosted a dinner party a few weeks ago, and I ran into a little bit of a problem. I spent two days cooking and baking from scratch. I told everyone to bring a dessert, drinks, or treats for my dog, and I had a guest show up with a frozen bag of pizza rolls. How do I explain that this is not an acceptable dish to bring to a dinner party? Well, you don't. That would be rude. You just take the pizza rolls and you say, that's fabulous. I'm putting them in the freezer and I'm going to be using them for the rest of the year. But they're not quite right for this dinner party tonight because oh. we have rolls already. Yeah, but sure. thank you so much. It's so thoughtful of you and so much better than flowers. Sure. But then you never invite that person to a dinner party you again. Never have that's them right. back. Yeah, the only appropriate thing to bring to a dinner party is booze. That is Don't right. You agree? Actually, Brendan has a long-standing thing that basically, if you're invited to a dinner party, you are bringing wine, whether that's stated or not. Exactly. Yeah. One per one bottle per person, whether or not you drink. That's I take what I think. peach snaps. I always bring really? a bottle of peach snaps because oh. that always gets the party going at the end of dinner. Not like Boone's Farm or anything. No. Like a, no. a high-end peach <laughs> no, snaps. The high-end one. Yes. Yeah, Thank I, you. I think I think Jackie Collins <laughs> can afford real peach I snaps. I would hope so. These are good questions. Yeah, I we have a pretty so. smart audience. Yeah. This is this one comes from everyone in America. Yes. So that's what yeah. it says here. That's how many listeners asked some version of that question. But, but. um what's the most memorable get together you've ever been to? Prentice's who what where details please. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you were around in the 70s and you went to one of the rock star parties, yes. if you remembered it, it wasn't that memorable because you couldn't remember it. But so maybe no, we seriously, were there, I remember Rico, being I mean... a, a party that the mamas and the papas gave and there was like Japanese porn on the walls, <laughs> films going on and people, you know, great big silver dishes of Coke everywhere. It was it was totally wild. Wow, silver dishes of Coca-Cola. Yeah, that that sounds, sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you were probably really 
Caffeinated. <gasps> um, the memorable party that I had was a great uh, birthday party that I threw for um, Michael Caine. It was I've his heard birthday. of him. And uh, he was doing a movie with Scarlett Johansson, so Scarlett came. And I'm name-dropping now like yeah. crazy. Yeah, I like it. But Bring Jack it. Nicholson happened to be at the party. Yeah. What? Sitting at the bar hitting on Scarlett. And I went up to Scarlett and I said, I'm bringing out this cake for Michael. And I would love you to sing uh, Happy Birthday. And Jack, who's hitting on her, goes, no, she's too busy. And she goes, no, I'd love to do it. And so I extracted her from Jack Nicholson, and she sung Happy Birthday, Michael Caine, in a Marilyn Monroe voice. That is exactly what I think is going on yeah. a zip code away from me when I go to bed this at night. This is what we want to believe is still happening in Hollywood. It's true. I mean, there were a lot of uh, interesting people at this party. Well, look, if, we, if you do invite us to a dinner party, we'll know how to behave because— You'll bring peach snaps. We'll bring peach snaps and silver bottles trays and of Coca-Cola. Yes, you won't hit on the 12-year-old girls. We promise. Jackie Collins, thanks for the tips. Thank you so much. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. And ladies and gentlemen in the audience, thank you. Yes. Because without your questions, we wouldn't have been able to do that segment. That's right. We did not make up those questions. <laughs> no. And we're going to need more. So if you have a question about whether or not to hold a door open for someone or slam a door on someone. Which hand to hold the fork in and which fork to use to poke somebody. Please send us emails. You can find our address at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Artist and author Jeannie Darst just published a brand new memoir called Fiction Ruined My Family. This week we overhear a dinner party worthy excerpt about her mother. As for my mother, she didn't look homeless, but she was becoming less and less of a mother you could take out in public. She had a uniform, a black pencil skirt, gray cashmere cowl neck, long pearls which always got hooked on one breast, black stockings, stylish black heels, high, lit cigarette, jangly charm bracelets of her mother's, and gold bangles and gold and platinum rings. She would no sooner wear silver than she would a candy necklace. This was the outfit she wore when she went out, except Sometimes she lost part of her outfit. That summer, my sister Kate had a bunch of friends get married. By the fall, she needed to buy some wedding gifts, and she wanted to hit the boutiques along Bleecker Street. She called Mom, and they decided on lunch at Tartine, and then some shopping. Mom was wearing her usual outfit. After lunch, they hit a slew of stores up and down Bleecker. Coming out of Pierre de Mom shrieked, Ooh! Where's my skirt? Kate looked down and Mom was indeed missing her standard size one black pencil skirt that she had been wearing earlier in the day. The rest of her uniform was intact, poof of faux blonde souffle balanced on top of a gray cowl neck, long strand of pearls, black opaque stockings showcasing a pair of gams that would have made Ann Miller get a desk job, black undies underneath the black stockings, and three and a half inch Joan and David black pumps. Mom, Kate yelled, totally startled and baffled, where's your skirt? I don't know, Kate. It was here a minute ago. Oh, for God's sake. Mom lit a cigarette to calm herself and focus on the case of the missing skirt. Were you wearing it when we left the restaurant? Kate asked, panicked, looking through her bag for something to tie around Mom's torso. I must have been, don't you think? Mom asked, less concerned about her current state of undress than intrigued by the puzzle of it all, as if it were just another trick Will Shorts had up his sleeve for her. Two young women walked by Kate and Mom, locking eyes on Mom's stockinged rear. Jesus, Mom, should we get a cab? Kate said. 
Are you out of your mind? That's a brand new Calvin Klein skirt. Kate began huffing loudly. Well, I don't know. Jesus, Mom. I mean, Jesus. I went to the bathroom at Tartine, and I'm pretty damn sure I had it on when I came out. Mom parked her cigarette between her lips and began running her hands up and down her sides and under her sweater. She felt something in her sweater and pulled it downward, and out popped one black Calvin Klein skirt. Oh, for heaven's sake, Mom said, cackling with delight. Here it is, Kate. Kate cackled, too, as Mom pulled it over her hips and smoothed it down with her hand. I'd hate to think how many stores we were in since lunch, Mom laughed. Yeah, sort of thought of that. Let's go have a beer at the White Horse. Author Jeannie Darst from her memoir, Fiction Ruined My Family, which, Brendan, I haven't read. What is up with the mom? She's just, you know, kind of a dotty person. I think that story kind of encapsulates who she is. I, I heard of <laughs> losing my shirt, but her skirt. That's right. That's serious. Hey, man, she just took it in stride. Right. A drafty, exposed stride. Yes, so. <laughs> People, if you've lost something, uh, maybe it's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. Go there and see if you can find it. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we're schooled by somebody who knows something we don't. So if the topic comes up at a party, we can hold our own in conversation. Our teacher this week is Gary Hustwit. He's known for his accessible movies about design. Uh, The first one was Helvetica, about the font of the same name. It was kind of a design geek favorite. Uh, His latest comes out next week. It's called Urbanized, and it's about urban design. So he's going to school us about what's going on in that world. We have some clips from his movie here. Gary, get me up to speed on urban design. Well, there's, I mean, so much going on. One thing that I saw a lot is sort of like this DIY uh, urbanism or kind of self-organized urbanism. Okay. You see it in in informal slums and things like that where the city is not going to come in and provide. But uh, you also see it a lot of times now in cities like uh, Detroit or New Orleans. One example that we show in the film is... Um, a public artist named Candy Chang in New Orleans. I put grids of stickers on neglected buildings around the city and a little Sharpie pen for people who are walking by to write what they wish was there. It's such a simple idea. These are like those uh, Hello, My Name Is stickers affixed to abandoned buildings. So what kind of things are people saying they want? Well, there were a lot of things on there, like, I wish this was uh, full of nymphomaniacs with PhDs or something <laughs> like that. I mean, the, the wide range. But uh, no, people wanted grocery stores. They wanted green spaces. They wanted a pet store. There's a, a real kind of resistance now to a top-down approach in, in, to city design. Okay, so DIY urbanism is one thing I can talk about. What else is going on? There's also a lot of kind of temporary interventions that you see around cities now, sort of this pop-up urbanism, okay. which would be um, like changing, you know, an area of the city for a, for a day or two into some different type of use. So uh, here in Los Angeles, I know they're doing the Ciclovia, which is uh, blocking off streets for to car traffic and just having bicycles and pedestrians. Um, that's actually an idea that started in Bogota uh, a little over 10 years ago. Enrique Peñalosa, who was the mayor of Bogota for from 1998 to 2001. He did a lot of really innovative programs back then. People seem to imagine that parking is a right, almost a fundamental right to be included in the United Nations Charter. In our constitution, there are many rights. The right to housing, the right to education, the right to health, but I don't find the right to park. 
He almost seems fake. I mean, is he as cool as you make him seem? No, he's totally genuine and totally, you know, committed. So many things that that, uh, Penulosa says are just really common sense when you think about it. Like the idea that a bus carrying 100 people has the right to 100 times more road space than a car carrying one. Well, of course, that sounds, you know, that that sounds perfectly logical. Yeah. Um, But that's very, very rarely the case in terms of the, the way cities are laid out that public transportation gets that much space. It's also interesting to hear him toggle from like speaking about the constitutional rights of, of man and the the UN charter and then parking. And it seems like that's the sort of breadth of yeah, knowledge you'd yeah. like your leader to have. Yeah. He's actually running for mayor again and is the front runner and the elections are this month. So we have DIY, we have pop-up how can, else can we impress folks uh, talking about urban design? Another sort of uh, newer uh, trend is something called participatory design. That sounds potentially dangerous. Yeah. Um, in the film, we look at a social housing project in Santiago, Chile. Instead of building a, a whole really kind of cheap house, yeah. they basically built half a really good house which meant the structure is there and the kind of the foundation. And then they let the people that are are, uh, moving into these houses who were living in a slum modify the houses and complete them in a sense. This is interesting because one critique of government housing is that it's kind of a one-size-fits-all form of social engineering that, um, you know, dehumanizes people in a way. But this sounds like it addresses that concern. Yeah. Um, For instance, they couldn't afford to give the people both a bathtub and a water heater. So the choice was between the two. Mm-hmm. And when you ask people, like, what would you rather have, a bathtub or hot water? Normally, all of us, you know, say hot water. I think in America, we'd say both, actually. But, <laughs> yeah. In 100% of the cases, uh, when we ask this to families, they prefer the bathtub over the water heater. You have to understand that when they move in, they do not have money to pay the gas bill to heat the water. So knowing that in their priorities, bathtub is much higher than water heater, let's do the bathtub and allow them over time to buy the water heater. It turns social housing into an asset versus a, an expense. And if they really succeed at this, gentrifiers will come and participate in taking those homes off their hands. Yeah, uh, probably. <laughs> right? Well, Gary, thanks for the chattering class on urban design. Uh, Now, next time we're at a party and see people with expensive glasses, we won't have to run away. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So, Rico, it's estimated that by 2050, 75% of the world will be living in cities. Really? Yeah. So basically, urban design is not just for people with fancy glasses anymore. <laughs> That's good, because my glasses are pretty cheap. Are you sure that it's as, it's going to be as late as 2050? Because I think 75% of the world was sitting on the 5 freeway with me yesterday. <laughs> me included. You're, you're part of the problem. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a break. When we get back, Antonio Banderas tells us a secret. I am a woman. That's a pretty big secret. Yeah. More where that came from when the dinner party returns.
welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that tells you about cool stuff going on in the culture. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, guest of honor Antonio Banderas. Mm. He's got a couple of movies out this month. We'll learn why he yearns for the 19th century. Curious. But first, it's time for the main course, where we learn about the best part of the dinner party. Yes, food. And Brendan, as you know, a new trend in candy is old candy. Stale candy? No. I thought that happened after Halloween. Boutique shops are selling Malamars, violet uh, gum, yeah. nostalgic stuff. It's a return to the golden age of candy. Which could spark a return to the golden age of dentistry right. if all goes as planned. Yeah, they've got their fingers crossed. <laughs> but when it comes to old-fashioned sweets, you are not going to find much older than in the country of Turkey, uh-huh. where Turkish delight has been a big part of the culture since the 1700s. These are little glutinous, sugary squares with different nut or fruit flavors. Mm-hmm. The Turks call it locum. And if you've tried any in the States, you probably don't understand why anyone gives a damn about them. Yeah, I, I hear they're usually like disappointing little, you know, hard-to-chew bricks Yes, <laughs> with powder on them. It's not pleasant. But recently I was in the Turkish city of Istanbul. Not Constantinople. No way. <laughs> and I met up with Megan Clark. She is a blogger and tour guide with a group called Istanbul Eats. She took me to a shop she swore would help me understand the glory of Turkish delight. I asked her what makes the place so special. These guys, Altan Şekerleve, they've been here since 1865. Three generations still working in the shop, but four generations total. And they do it from scratch, they do it on site, and they do it better than everybody else. <laughs> That's a good reason. Is this a typical Turkish delight type shop? It's not something that you find in every residential neighborhood anymore. It would have been something that would be pretty common to find. What happened to these kind of shops? What, what replaced them? Even here you can see you know, a bunch of the shelves and window displays are full of uh, factory-made candies, and those are all over the place, and they really have taken over from the homemade candy. So it's harder to find places that make their own candy. The McDonaldization of Turkish delight. <laughs> all right, the, uh, the, it sounds like the afternoon prayers have begun, so that's as good an excuse as any to go inside and continue this interview with the people involved. Time for some sugar. All right, we were standing in the shop there, Jars and jars of really bright, happy-looking candies. Those are sort of the cut sugar-spun candies. We have giant pretzels made of twisted peppermint stick that are like the size of a baby's arm in thickness. This is like Willy Wonka's favorite place on earth. And then in the main cabinet is, of course, the locum. Bins of them, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, twelve different flavors. There's dates inside of some of them and... Uh, some that look more like marshmallows with almonds in them. It's kind of wonderful in here. All right, can you uh, give me your name and what you do? Hakan Altan from Turkey, Istanbul. <laughs> I noticed. And what do you what do you do? It's his family's business. They make candy. He learned from his father. His father learned from his grandfather, and his grandfather learned from his great grandfather. <laughs> That's a long ways to pass down one recipe. Are you sure you got it right? (laughs) He said, absolutely, because it's in the family and it's from one person to the other directly. Tell me, what is Turkish delight? We hear about it a lot, but a lot of people in America don't know exactly what it is. Uh, The Ottoman royal family, and especially the sultans, after having a meal, they developed Turkish delight as a way to settle their stomach. So it was actually kind of a digestive kind of thing. Nice. Okay, like instead of brandy, candy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What is in it? Is it mostly sugar? I mean, it's very sweet, obviously. 
So it's basically cornstarch, uh, sugar, and citric acid. So in Turkish it's lemon salt, but it's actually citric acid and water. What is, there are many flavors of Turkish delight here. Which is your favorite to eat? The pistachio, because the way that the pistachio flavors the actual lokum stuff itself is particular to pistachios and really delicate and amazing. But traditionally you would eat plain lokum, right? Like with tea or something like that? Traditionally, and we're talking, you know, Ottoman period traditional, you'd get the plain or rose-flavored gula lokum, paired with coffee, not with tea. In part because coffee is something where you would have one cup socially with friends whereas tea, like, you would drink constantly throughout the day. And so if you're having tea and a piece of locum 30 times a day, that's a little bit too awesome for words. You're a little too wired. <laughs> There'd be way too much done in this country. The GDP would go off the charts. Now, the pistachio is your favorite. That makes sense because I'm also told that pistachios are the most special and kind of most expensive one, right? Can I, can I try some of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, of course, and he's grinning. <laughs> and so am I, because I think I'm going to get a free piece of locum. Okay. So we have some, I'm going to try some of this uh, double pistachio, the most expensive treat in the house. This is good. That is good. I like especially the glueiness of the candy, then you hit something hard and crunchy and then keep getting through gluey. And it's still the most expensive not in Turkey, even though Turkey is sort of known to be a place for pistachios to be grown? It's expensive. It's not more expensive than, you know, Brazil nuts or things that are by and large imported. But as things go, that the kinds of nuts that get used in most Turkish cuisine, the pistachio is king. Oh, I've, so one more question. Typically in America, you think of a candy store as a place for kids. Is that the case here? Are you selling mostly to children or mostly to adults? No, actually, this isn't the kind of candy store where he gets a lot of children coming in, mostly because children these days are more interested in kind of cheap chocolate candy bars and different kinds of flavors, like watermelon and weird things like that. Uh, so a lot of what he gets are people coming in looking for a kind of nostalgic experience of flavors and the textures and everything that they remember from their youth. It's for grown-up children. Yes, these are for grown-up children, yes. Wow, those people seem so nice. That place it, seemed really great. It was pretty magical. You know what was interesting, though? The fact that they thought candy was a stomach settler. Like, that's that's kind of. I, I mean, I always think of it as like a stomach expander. Right. <laughs> and actually, everyone in the shop was in great shape, uh -huh. which was puzzling to me until I saw them hauling gigantic, like, 50-pound sacks of sugar into the place <laughs> over their backs. Which is great. They're probably using that all for one little square of Turkish delight, that's right? That's right. <laughs> it's very sugary stuff. Dear listeners... If you want to send us sweet emails, I guess, go to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is actor Antonio Banderas. He stars in The Skin I Live In, the new film from Spanish auteur Pedro Amadovar. Banderas plays a successful plastic surgeon who is also a sociopath. And he's also the voice in the new animated DreamWorks feature, Puss in Boots, where he plays a swashbuckling pussycat. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff going on in one month from such different parts of the spectrum. Are you excited? I mean, how does it feel to suddenly be everywhere? I get really excited when I am doing the work. When I am promoting, it's, it's done. You know, I mean, you do it because you have to do it. It's part of your 
professional world. But for me, the point is just when you are on the set, when somebody says to you, action, and they say, God, that, that is what is interesting. And what I am doing, the voice of Puss, um, is just going to the studio and having fun, trying to make people laugh uh, all around the world. Now ye auger, pray for mercy from Puss. Ooh, I'll kill that cat. <laughs> but I will tell you, you know, that I think movies, like art in general, I think it serves many different purposes. It can go from uh, just making people happy to actually explore the complexities of the human soul and the human spirit and everything in the middle. And as an actor, I like that. Uh, like the old comics that used to go with a chariot from village to village. Quote you said, you said something like, I don't think of a career, I think of myself as one of those 19th century actors that went from village to village. I just love that idea. And it's a very romantic image. They used to play a comedy at three and Shakespeare at night. Everything was possible for them, you know, just to visit different universes. Career is a, is a word a little bit controversial for me. How so? Because uh, suddenly there are a number of things as an actor that you cannot do because you're going to damage your career, <laughs> you know? It starts to restrict you as a human. Definitely. You become contrived. You become too self-important. Sometimes actors, we take ourselves a little bit too seriously. Well, it makes sense that career would be controversial for you because in this movie, people left the screening at cons upset because it was so challenging. Somebody who was more uptight about their image wouldn't have said yes to this. No, but for me it was different because actually I started my career as an actor in movies with Pedro Almodóvar. For me that was the, the beginning because yeah. until that time I was an actor in theater. You did your first five films with Almodóvar and at the time you and he were at the center of like a pretty bustling avant-garde movie scene in Madrid. Uh, then you came over to Hollywood, 22 years have passed and now you're finally reunited. How did you know it was time to work with him again? He approached me and he says, Antonio, I, I found a material that I think you would be interested and I would like to shoot with you. And he told me the story and he says, you want to do it? And I said, yeah, you're, you're the only one probably who can do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then many years happened. And then I was coming out of a workshop that I was doing in New York. And I got on the car and then somebody called me, it was Pedro. And I answered the phone and said, hey, what's up? And he said, uh, it's about time. That's all he said. So in this movie, you play a very successful plastic surgeon who becomes a bit of a mad scientist after the death of his wife and the institutionalization of his daughter. You know, in this role, you have to toggle between moments of almost like Shakespearean drama to scenes from, you know, right out of a horror film. Was that hard to pull off? Th that's the style of Pedro. Pedro can go in page three from the altitudes of Shakespeare to page four, which is almost like a Mexican soap opera. <laughs> but that's his style. The movie also touches upon perfection, which got me thinking, you know, you are an actor, but you're also a celebrity. And perfection is in some ways the business of celebrity. How do you feel about, you know, being perceived that way? I don't do anything about it. A style is, a, is an actor who plays himself all the time. You have to be brilliant all the time. I'm not brilliant all the time. I, you know, I have my own, you know, thing going on. When when you came to America, what was it? Was like 1990, 90. A lot of roles you were getting were kind of like Latin lover roles, right? I have played, uh, you know, vampires. <laughs> I may be actually the the actor in the history of motion picture who played more gays. Still a Latin lover. How is that possible? <laughs> 
it, it's unbelievable. But uh, when I came to America, I did horror movies like Interview with Vampire, musicals like Vita, Adventures like Zorro, Desperado. Then I moved for kids like Spy Kids. I did animation. I went to Broadway. I nominated for a Tony, right? Just for a musical, right? For a musical. And uh, so, you know, many things happen. But, man, when somebody puts a label on you, yeah. you got to carry it on. <laughs> Like a man. <laughs> well, look, we have two standard questions we ask everybody on our show. And the first one is, you've been interviewed a gazillion times. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, you know, at the beginning of my career here, everybody asked me, you know, is that true that when you came to America, you didn't speak English? But after 21 years, the people still ask me that, you know, with my Shakespearean English, no. It's unbelievable, yeah. but they do. <laughs> you like open movies. I mean, you are the centerpiece of English language movies, and they're still curious about that. They're still curious about that. Well, I mean, it is a remarkable feat, because you were cast for the Mambo Kings, and you quick, you had to learn the language phonetically. That's so frightening. Like, how old were you then? Um, I was uh, 30, 33 years old. So to learn a new language, that's pretty intense when you're 33. Oh my God, it was painful. Yeah. Believe me, it was painful. Not so much for, for the movie, because in the movie, actually, you can learn the lines phonetically, so you feel like you are saying something that is meaningful. <laughs> but uh, when I went to dinners and uh, you had meetings with other people and everybody was speaking very fast and you don't know what the heck they were talking about, and you feel like an idiot, yeah. in, in, you only have the opportunity to say something that is very simple. Simple, you yeah. know, like uh, I like Los Angeles. <laughs> Antonio really likes Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then our other question we ask is, um, tell us something we don't know about you. I want to give my audience something they may not know about you. I am a woman. <laughs> I'm, I'm staring at you right now. You do not have the basic components of a woman, so explain. But I am. Uh, tell, tell me more. My name is Lupe. Hmm. Okay, well, I think this might make more sense to people who've actually seen uh, the skin I live in, unless you're being serious. Are you? And, and, and look at my voice. Eh? I am doing a real deep voice, but I am a woman. My name is Lupe, but you can call me Lupita. <laughs> So, Rico, at that point, yeah. Banderas' publicist took away my recorder and ushered him immediately out of the room. I was going to say, <laughs> that was a little weird there. For it was a, a little minute. strange. No, I'm just kidding. As I said, his answer will make much more sense to people who go see the movie, and right. I recommend they do. It's, it's another lush and twisted wonder from Mr. Almodovar. From Pedro Almodovar? Surprise. Cocktails, guest of honor, main course, etiquette. There's only one more thing we'd like to give you before we send you on your way to a weekend of bonbons and bonhomie. Or BBQ and badminton. Or bills and laundry. Yeah. Realistically. R ran out of bees. <laughs> uh, this will help you turn whatever you're doing into a party, even laundry. It's a little something from Esperanza Spalding. She's the jazz bassist and singer who won the Grammy for Best New Artist this year. Some people think she stole the award from Justin Bieber. We don't. I'm Esperanza Spalding, and this will be my dinner party soundtrack. I will put on Aka Seca Trio. I like music with a little bit of tension in it, you know? But that music is laid back enough that it wouldn't, like, dominate the sonic space of a room yet. To me, there's enough quirkiness in the beauty that it still makes it like an interesting contribution, you know? 
to I, I like this band Little Dragon and there's a song called Twice but see that's not good dinner music because I think if you put that on everybody would stop talking and listen to it Twice I turn my back on you I fell flat on my face but didn't lose Tell me where would I go Maybe you need a break from everybody's, you know, conversation. If it seemed to be swirling into like pseudo philosophizing, you could put on Little Dragon. Was it the light ways? So frightening? Was it a two wheels? One a mirror holding a steering Another good record that would be good for dinner is you could put on some Jackie Byard on the spot. That's a great record. And I think Spanish Tingle would be a good song. <laughs> Actually, it's a different song. Oh, I know. I have my, I, I was just listening to it on the plane. It's a different song where Jackie Byard's playing alto saxophone. And I was just realizing yesterday he's one of my favorite saxophone players. Wow. He's an amazing saxophone. Okay, let's see. The song that I was thinking of is called... Hold on. <laughs> toodaloo, toodaloo. I don't know. It depends on the kind of dinner party, but, you know, I, I'm seeing friends that I know already, and we're sitting around talking about something humorous or mildly poking fun at intellectualism, you know. So that's what our dinner parties usually are. So something like Jackie Byard, that would just bring the energy up. As a musician, he's such a master, but there's such a childishness about the music. It's almost like funny, but then of course, I mean, it's masterful. Grammy-winning singer Esperanza Spaulding's Dinner Party soundtrack. You can find out more about her work and the song she picked at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. If you miss part of the show or just want to hear from Jackie Collins again, yes. I know I do, <laughs> you can head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and sign up for our podcast. Our assistant producer is Jackson Musker. Thanks this week to Judy McAlpin, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Ravi Carmen, Craig Curtis, Chris Clark, Brendan Willard, and all our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Bon appetit. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am a woman. Are you still here? <laughs>